0: Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister.
1: And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse.
0: Nathan, today I want to press against or really explore the notion that people don't like to think. And I don't know, I'm just curious, as we get started, Nathan, in your experience as... So Nathan and I, if you don't know this already, I'm sure you do, are both speakers and we often address topics that are intellectual in nature, philosophical, the problem of evil, evidential arguments for Christianity. The existence these of Cameron. Of, the existence of whether Cameron, yeah, whether Cameron exists or not, or whether he's a, a simulation. But Dylan, but so, Dylan, but Nathan, in your experience, have you had a lot of hosts or people try to impress upon you, keep this, really make this simple? I hear phrases I, I've heard phrases many times. put the cookies on the lower shelf. I loathe that phrase by the way. <laughs> and you know is this is that I'm just wondering, is that just me or is that that been a feature of your speaking career and writing career as well?
1: So yeah, absolutely, but I would say it, in all so what's interesting is is the people who say that I think are a minority um the there the, i had a little flashback i can't remember what essay it is by marilyn robinson she said have you ever met someone who said boy i wish that sermon was just a little more stupid <laughs> um mm. and and there there's a sense there in which i think there very much is a real sense you know in john stott's book on preaching he talks about jesus said feed my sheep not feed my drafts you know you pull the hay all the way down to make it accessible right. to everybody you're not um so there is a way in which i think you can intentionally be flamboyant with your language you can use complex words and ideas t- in a way that kind of elevate if if you're uh, if you're out to prove that you're clever and that nobody else can keep sure. up you can do that but i think actually if you're using robust vocabulary and terminology in, in a way that's clear it's it's helping people reach and grow and that most of the people really really appreciate being talked to as if they're a functioning adult Um, not as if, you know, your sermon or your message is an extended children's story. That being said, people often do remember the children's story better than the sermon because the sermon is packaged or the children's story is packaged in such a way that, um, everybody can remember it. So uh, I'm saying two things at the same time. One is yes, absolutely. You can overdo it. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that it, it shouldn't be intellectually rich or rigorous. So, I think that's the skill I mean, everybody praises c s Lewis for this, right? The ability to take a complex idea and put it in simple language so i I
0: yes, don't know what so, I'm answering here.
1: i'm just well, I'm just yes. saying that yeah it's, that, that oftentimes people say you need to slow down or you need to to pull it down um but i think I think that's a minority perspective. I
0: think you're being a kind of kind. kind kind devil's advocate here a little bit for people who are concerned about general audiences. And so general audience is another sort of mythical creature that I want to talk about for a second. But I think really, Nathan, this whole thing turns on a misunderstanding of what accessibility actually is. That's what I think is a big Mm -hmm. problem. So it's very telling that you mentioned C.S. Lewis. You will routinely hear people talk about how incredibly hard it is to read C.S. Lewis now. I don't know if this app. Oh I hear it all the time oh my goodness this this that book was just really hard and i've I've heard mere Christianity described like this, which is a bit of an irony because mere Christianity of course started its life out not as a book at all but as a series of radio lectures for popular audiences and so c s Lewis spent a you know in an act of really great intellectual humility wrote some of the the books that made him famous and really constitute his legacy for a popular audience and experienced a good, a good deal of kind of smirking and even scorn from the academic community surrounding him. I mean, he was a scholar. I mean, he also wrote books like the discarded image and things like that. But so here's why I was thinking about this, Nathan, before, before I get it, you know, go off on a rabbit trail there, I came across an article and it was, it's just really good. I'll link it in the show notes, but it's called Popular Nonfiction and the Audience of Imagined Idiots. It's kind of a harsh <laughs> title. Uh, it's by Rebecca Baumgartner. Could you
1: summarize that down in smaller words for us, Cameron?
0: <laughs> right. Well, so <laughs> she the way she frames this is, is really funny. So she uses, first of all, i i I did a little bit of kind of half-hearted research on this word afterwards to see if I could find some kind of confirmation. And I can't find anything other than some article on medium that uses the word in this sense, but she talks about something called a Malcolm. And the way she's using that is not as a name. We're not talking about Malcolm Gladwell or anybody else, although he would kind of fit into this a little bit. She's She has in mind a literary convention where you try to ease your audience into complex territory or intellectual territory with a fun anecdotal story with a kind of redemptive arc. And she points out that a lot of popular nonfiction right now, there's one, she, she points out there's one critic who calls this popular nonfiction landfill nonfiction, which is, she goes, I, I, I'm just going to call it pop fiction so I don't sound so mean. But she talks about how a lot of these will start with a story or an anecdote that seemingly has nothing to do with anything at all on, on the subject of the book. Let's say it's about AI or something like that, and you hear a story about sailing. What does sailing have to do? But then suddenly there's this critical turn, and then the author says, "And that's when I knew I would have to change my life forever." And you know, you're sort of inspirational, and <laughs> and so she points out so a couple of couple of things she points out. She picks on David Brooks quite a bit here, actually, his his new book. But part of what she's pointing out is that a lot of these these. Books and Nathan, I think she's right here. This has been my experience trying to pick some of them up as well and putting them down in frustration. Started their life as an article
1: on the mm, internet, oh yeah.
0: right? So it, it be, I mean, and that's increasingly the case. You know, you write. Let's say, I mean, here's here are two writers we we like to reference a lot: Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. The Coddling mm. of the American Mind was an Atlantic article, and then you know it was tremendously popular, got a lot of clicks, and so publishers got in touch. And so she says basically you read some of these books and they feel like an article that's just padded or that's put on a lot of water weight so it, <laughs> it can fight at a 200 page level that's the way she puts mm-hmm. it That's that now that's not some of these books are better than others that's not always the case and by the way she 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 mentions some of the other writers who do this kind of thing write for write about specialized subjects for a general reader and do it really well Atul Gawande is one we both like him. He's sure, a medical yeah. doctor. She's, she she praises him for doing it well. Oliver Sacks is another one. She praises him for doing it well. Well, even Richard on a more Dawkins.
1: popular, uh, Bill Bryson I think would fit into that camp. Even like the kind of travel yes. quirky writing sort of. Um, yeah, absolutely. There, there are people. It was very entertaining and, yeah, uh, um you know. Well, Michael our Pollan, friend Andy Bannister, mentions him too. Our friend Andy Bannister, is the atheist who didn't exist, almost functions in this category as well as a. Humorous narrative-based yeah. philosophy, um, but you couldn't summarize. Yeah, it's it. It's entertaining and fun. Yeah.
0: Without talking about, well, let me give you this is well. Here's something I do, I do rarely. I'm actually going to give you a direct quote from the article because I think this is really good, and this will help us get to that statement. Give I us made the author about, again, too. Yeah. So I think it's Rebecca Baumgartner. Yes, Rebecca Baumgartner. But here's what she she says at one point when she's talking about the tone of these these books. And she also, she mentions, it's, it's hard not to think of, if some of you were thinking about TED Talks, that would also be very germane to this conversation. She brings that in. She talks about TED Talks, where you have these little bite-sized ideas broken down. She even talks about the way the paragraphs are broken down, sometimes into tiny paragraphs, sometimes into single sentences, just to ensure that you don't lose the reader's attention. So here's what she says, quote, is it a cynical ploy to keep eyeballs on pages by appealing to the lowest common denominator or has the standard authorial voice after a couple of decades marinating in YouTube and a feedback loop of other pop nonfiction truly become this shallow and falsely chummy? End quote. Now, I think that's a good and searching question. So. Let me give you an assertion, Nathan, and then you push back or interrogate me on it or just react to it. I think a, a lot of the problem here when it comes to the notion. So, again, what I want to press into is not how books are written necessarily, but the idea that people don't like to think, the idea that people are afraid of intellectual ta- territory, and the idea that if you want to get them to think, you have to bend over backwards, you have to condescend to them, you have to do this kind of chummy thing where you use these. There's nothing wrong with an illustration, but when you use these stories to sort of bait and switch them to you know, start thinking about quantum mechanics, you can see how that's a bit patronizing. So I think that this really turns on a misunderstanding of what accessibility means. Mm-hmm. For, a yeah. lot of, for a lot of us, this, the assumption seems to be that accessibility is synonymous with oversimplification or dumbing down. When in fact, accessibility has to do with translation more than anything. So you take some specialized body of knowledge or some highly technical form of knowledge and you, the, the goal is clarity, not dumbing down, clarity. You make it sufficiently clear. This is where C.S. Lewis is an absolute master. He clearly has a handle on the ideas he's conveying. He understands them very well, but he writes so clearly. If you're, you know, we have a friend, good friend of ours, good friend of TOL, hey, hey there friend, Trav, who is, <laughs> works in a field with a lot of people who are very technically very gifted, engineers and, and such. But engineers often have trouble articulating their specialized knowledge to laymen. That's, that's mm-hmm. a real skill. They can only, if you ask them to describe what it is they're doing and describe the problem, they'll use a whole host, of, they'll use a bunch of terminology you you don't understand and you can't wrap your head around it and they get frustrated because actually making this clear to you, a layman, takes a whole lot of work. But that's, the people who can do that, that's accessibility. If you can, in fact, do what Richard Feynman did And translate physics and quantum mechanics. If you can make some of this stuff clear to people, or if you're just a parent with your child, you know, I think about Dylan asking me about nuclear fusion, nuclear fission, and trying to find (laughs) creative ways to translate this for him. That's really what accessibility has to do. And so when you're talking to your audiences or, or when you're speaking to people, whether it's evangelistically in your conversations, I think. People like people actually do like to think people are and people are capable of way more than they realize that they are. But people also want that. I mean, I've I've said this before, Nathan, when I'm reading a book and I feel like I'm out of my depth, I'm excited. It's good. I'm going. This person has something to teach me. Oh, no. She just used the word recrudescence. This person has something to teach me. This this person is going to make me reach a little bit. Maybe not. You know, maybe she's he or she isn't writing for giraffes, but at least they want me to try and participate. So mm-hmm. that's, I think, that, that's, that's the way I would put it.
1: Yeah, so a couple things here. Um, I was trying to think of times in which I've heard somebody say, I don't want to think about that. And it all refers to tragedy. So maybe you hear a story of a grandfather who backs over his grandson and kills him in a parking lot. And, and I could imagine my mom saying, Oh, like, I just, I can't even imagine. Like, I just don't want to think about that. Obviously she is thinking about it, but it's a category, but the phrase, I don't want to think. Yeah. The only times I hear somebody say, I don't want to think about that are, are emotional responses to tragedy. It's never like, Oh, you know, that's an interesting idea. I don't want to think about it. Right. I've never run into that. Um, and, and there's also some pretty significant stereotypes on who, who is a thinker. And who is interested? That just shouldn't be there. Um, a year or two ago, I was speaking at a conference in Cincinnati and preached what I thought was a very normal Nathan sounding sermon. And afterward, a couple of people were like, "Oh, you really threw some twenty dollars words in there." And I was like, "Be like, well, my vocabulary was formed by growing up in rural Appalachia, so try to keep up." You know, <laughs> um it, it was the sense of like, well, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't talking to all these professional preachers any different than I would in my home church um so there's that but so all right let me uh, subtle devil's advocate here is i don't know if you've ever gone on a run or a bike ride with a group of people that are actually faster than you <laughs> it's pretty miserable it's it's, um, it's it's not fun yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, so there's a difference between going on a run with somebody who's faster than you who's trying to prove to you that they're faster than you that's called mm-hmm. a race sure and going um, on a bike ride with somebody who's faster than you, but wants to see you succeed and help you along to get better. And so I think there is a, yeah, you, you could give the, you could use the same words, the same stories, give the same talk and, and relay the same information in one way where you're like, haha look what I know. I can leave you all behind. Well, of course you know more about it. You've thought about it for 40 hours and this person's thought about it for 40 seconds. Right. So yeah. that's not impressive as a speaker knows more about something than the people who are listening. But, or there's another way in which the heart of the speaker is very much like, I've thought a lot about this and I think you'd be blessed by thinking about this too. Come along with me and look at this. So in some ways, it seems like the toning and the intention there is the thinking an invitation or a confrontation. That would be, I, I think if people, th- if people yeah, think of the thinking great. as a, as a competition, we shut down. If we think of it as an invitation to participation and to exploration, then, then that lights us up. We get excited about it. Um, And, and I, I'm sure you get a thrill out of the same. I do helping my kids. Um, you know, Madeline and I were having a conversation about what does the word uniform mean the other night and her clicking on, you know, same shape form. What does it mean for a basketball team that have same uniform? They all have one form. Like it was, she was like, I could see the pennies dropping in her mind quickly of like, what does this word mean? And what are the appropriate uses of it? And I knew more about it, but I was delighting in seeing her do it. and so if If you do enjoy thinking, then you also enjoy helping other people think. So I got a little off topic there, but those are my first thoughts.
0: Yeah, no, that's great, especially the contrast between invitation or you know really, yeah confrontation or or just yeah a competition <laughs> that's that's true. I think in some ways, an example I'll bring in here is David Foster Wallace. So I think part of the genius of the nonfiction persona. He constructed and, and Dave and, you know, Nathan, you've, you've read it before. You've read some of his, his essays. He just walks this amazing tightrope of being able to, to engage some really heavy, heavy, heady and cerebral stuff in a very avuncular tone. And really, it's, it's the tone of a classic, polite Midwesterner.
1: Way to use and this, avuncular I mean, is, in a conversation about making words accessible.
0: Oh there you go that's, that's kind of an iron irony <laughs> ring. but but you know th- so he does this he does this really well he's able to and he and he throws in all these you know colloquialisms and all these these very kind of normal phrases but then all of a sudden he'll start he'll bring in heavy ha- academic language he'll talk about something like the death of the author trope and he'll heavily footnote it but the whole time the feeling you get when you read these essays not not everybody you know it's not everybody's cup of tea. Some people don't. Some people really can't stand David Foster Wallace, and that's fine.
1: But they just a lot can't of be people Cameron's who friend. and by that's the okay. no big deal. Well, no, that's fine. <laughs> well,
0: I mean, you know, and you know, there's a there's a big division and debate among a lot of David Foster Wallace fans. Those who are devoted to his fiction and those who think his his essays as nonfiction are really his his best work. I'm not going to tell you where I come down there either way. But his but these essays are tremendous they're phenomenal and they're very laugh out loud funny and they really will make you think but the feeling you get as you read them is yes i'm in the presence of somebody who's smarter than me however the the feeling and again i think this is very much the style he constructed he's whether this is actually the way wallace felt or not who knows but he conveys it very well through the skill and craftsmanship of how he makes these essays the feeling you have is wow i'm in the presence of a person who's smarter than i am possibly a genius but who cares about me and wants to bring me yeah. along for the ride mm-hmm. and so that's yeah. a that's a very special skill so i mean obviously that's not every not not everybody is in that category but of course you do that is a little bit of what i relish when i read certain writers and i come into the presence of somebody who is yes this person is astonishing astonishingly brilliant and creative and yet they want they want to bring me along for the ride they're they're inviting me in
1: Yeah. So one of the things that is a helpful, I'm I'm just realizing this as, um, as you're speaking there and thinking about it is that when you say, you know, you're listening to something, you're reading something and you say, you know, this person's really smart or they're clever or they're brilliant or they're genius or something. Um, the, the main factor in, in that communication is actually how much time they've had to think about it. So Right. If if I go and I'm speaking somewhere, I never think that I'm smarter than the audience I'm speaking to. In fact, they have life experiences and knowledge about things that I don't have a clue about. So, as far as the processing speed that we're all capable of, I think we're largely on equal footing. The difference is, and this is the value of, and I mean, for those of you who support thinking out loud, and you're like, well, Nathan and Cameron, you know, have these thoughts and ideas, and they've read all these books. Yeah, you know why we can do that? Because I'm not digging ditches eight hours every day. Um, <laughs> because right. people are saying, we think it's valuable for you to read through That's this stuff. That's yeah. our job, yeah. It's our job, yeah. And so there's a sense in which the best forms of communication are the people who have, um, you know, it's like picking a handful of raspberries. You got to deal with the briars and the leaves and all of that. And if somebody will do that and put it in a little carton for you, awesome. Thank you. That's great. So I think good communication does that where somebody is taking the time to collect the choices, bits of the situation and present it in a palatable way and it's something to be appreciative of so that um i think plays in there as well um of just like how much time do you have to think about something that's seems to me the biggest oh absolutely
0: oh yeah i completely feel that every time i speak anywhere and if anybody you know says something you know gives me some compliment that embarrasses me i I just think yeah but part of this is part of what i have to do it's my job I have way more time devoted to reading and reflection than than the average person who simply doesn't have that luxury because it's not their job and they don't have the they don't have those hours. So and and plus yeah you have a you have a host of experiences that I yeah that I need to learn from as well. So mm-hmm. absolutely true. But back to so back to the accessibility piece though. So if accessibility wow. is indeed if it doesn't have anything to do, if it's a misunderstanding to say that it's about oversimplification or dumbing down, then the, the, the propensity to do that, though, to constantly dumb down, to, re, to kind of cater to the lowest common denominator, would represent a kind of capitulation to, I don't know, a culture of mediocrity. And Because let's face it, and this isn't an, an elitist statement. This is true. So we, this is what we in our neck of the woods, Nathan. What we always hear about is how the church is ha, can be dumbed down at times, and how sermons are, you know, are not as substantive as they need to be. We need more depth. We need more rigor. And by the way, there are plenty of wonderful in-depth sermons being preached every Sunday all around the world, all around this country as well. I mean part of this has to do with the with the church that you're a part of and the type of church and what really what the church model is of course. But Nathan, we know without having to name names that there are certain church models that are very prevalent especially around cities and er- and you know areas like that that are geared to be more attractional and are geared to be, you know, have a very, you know, high octane worship service and be very entertaining and in those services Yes, the messages usually do follow a TED talk kind of format of trying to be very accessible, but it's a dumbed-down kind of accessibility. And that's not just limited to, to churches, though, by the way. That's why I opened with the that's why I like to draw from this article, which is looking at popular non-fiction. Yeah. You know, people pick up books like this or the TED Talks. Hey, I'm I'm doing something educational. This is actually helping me. When in fact, maybe it's not. Maybe well you have it's you have the whole word for that right? Can you reach? Y-
1: you've heard the phrase mm-hmm. edutainment, right? So these are you know oh, all the little <laughs> children's kids animal nature programs and stuff, where mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it's the little Einstein um, of how you're trying to yeah. it, it's entertainment, but you put an educational veneer on it in order to make everybody think that they're learning something while they do it. Um, can you can you parse out for me, or or does this phrase help us in our conversation? to make a distinction between simple and simplistic. Absolutely. Is, 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 that, a, is that a possible yes. framework to think through some of what you're saying here?
0: I think so. And also, let's take into account that there are often layers to something. So Jesus's parables, one oh. of the, the phrases I love connected to those came from Gregory Wolfe in Image Journal. He said, they are marvels of compressed meaning. So, hmm they're very rich take the most famous the parable of the prodigal son or the good samaritan so but they're simple they're simple in the sense that you can you could share these with a child and a child is going to pick up most of the basics and and the message will get through but they are also heavily layered so the more you study for instance the the story of the prodigal. If you you can also you can enrich it massively by looking into Middle Eastern culture and seeing how outrageous it would be to have a father running toward a son who has not only abandoned him, turned his back on him, but brought public shame to the family. All of that. I mean, there, so that I just want to say that don't misunderstand me and, and hear me as saying there's no complexity or richness to these to Jesus's parables.
1: Well, okay. there is
0: but you don't need it all at once. They are simple in the sense that they are immediately accessible to the hearers and they use imagery and conventions and characterization that anybody's going to be able to seize on.
1: Yeah. But so, okay. So you mentioned the prodigal son. This is a good example, Cameron though, of the effect of, okay, you actually, all right. So the word prodigal, most people think it means to run away. The word prodigal means to spend lavishly. The prodigal son is not a prodigal son because he ran away and came back. He's a prodigal son because he spent lavishly. And I remember um, a church I went to in college, I was gone on break. I came back. I was like, ah, the prodigal has returned. And the guy's like, you're not a prodigal. You're using that word incorrectly. I was like, oh, never thought of it. Thanks. But you and I ran into that (laughs) recently where somebody wrote something and they were using the word prodigal and we were both looking at each other like, uh you know Uh, you're using this word prodigal i don't think it means what you think it means um so a a sense in which there's a uh, i I don't want to say this is a dumbing down or an oversimplification but to the point that where we've actually changed the words within the pair like our description of the things in and of themselves should the church not be the place where we say oh hey and by the way did you know that the word prodigal doesn't mean to run away or to come back it has to do with lavishly spending what you have Mm -hmm, um you know, so not in an arrogant sense, but just in the sense of like, let's be accurate with our but, language on a simple okay. story.
0: That's and that's great. I want to, I want to actually throw some more simple examples at you. Some of which will sound less, I don't know, highfalutin. I mean, the parables of Jesus. I mean, this is, yeah, you know, these these are the parables of our Lord. All right, how about Bluey? Bluey is a very profound no show. Yeah, that Nathan is the only person listening who would have no idea what i'm talking about the cultural phenomenon that is bluey bluey is an australian children's television show about healer blue healers of dogs yeah. and Well, i
1: know they, about them as hunting dogs but it's I, not as a tv show
0: as a yes so and this is probably the most popular kids show right now worldwide and that's not an exaggeration but here's the thing it really is that good and I thought for a while, I, I, you know me, Nathan, I'm averse to bandwagons. I just don't want to. I love this. I don't want to be like everybody else. But I think that this this is the show that the way I've put it to my wife is I think this, if anything is carrying on the spirit of Mr. Rogers, it, it's not Daniel Tiger. I don't like Daniel Tiger. Sorry. <laughs> it's it's Bluey. High but praise. Bluey is real. Yes, but Bluey is simple. It is a, It's a children's show that children absolutely love. My kids are delighted by it. But it's also very profound. I mean, there are certain episodes that make some people cry. I mean, probably not me, but some people. (laughs) It's a very profound show. So, so there's an idea. There's, there's again an example of simplicity. I mean, I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia to Dylan right now. Reading Prince Caspian. Prince Caspian is simple in the sense that it's direct and clear. Other children's, you know, children's stories. Are actually a good place to point for profound simplicity. Mm-hmm. That's 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 simple in the good sense. The wind in the willows, you know, yeah. these are the velveteen rabbit.
1: Simple, oh, profound. And your fables and yeah. fables and fairy tales carry deep weighted means. Yeah,
0: yeah, yes. So I think again, it's it's resuscitating words like accessibility, words like simple, words like clarity what we tend to think, and it's just it's folk wisdom, and it's often it's articulated with the best of intentions. And sadly I do I hear it sounds like I hear this more than you do, Nathan, but it's it's usually, yeah, but today audiences aren't like they used to be, because we have YouTube and we have smartphones. And so human nature seems to be kind of different now. Now again, it wouldn't be articulated quite like this. I'm exaggerating a little bit to make a point. So you got to get your point across in 30 seconds. You know, if you don't do this, you'll lose them. If you don't do this, you'll lose them. If you don't use this many illustrations, if you don't have this many pictures, and I just don't buy any of it. I mean, do do we, you know, want the dopamine rush of, you know, offered by social media and all of that? Yeah, I mean, ac- increasingly we do we do have a lot of addictive behaviors and all that, but fundamentally, human beings still are Human beings, and they desire wisdom and depth, and especially, I especially feel this when I talk to younger people. That's what they well, want: I think, depth, yeah, wisdom.
1: Well, I think yeah. is it a function? Of, is it a function of curiosity too, though? I mean, it is. It, uh, it's. It's. I guess there are people who aren't curious. I don't know, but it seems like a a standard part of a healthy human is to want to know mm. more and to learn and to be exploring and pushing the boundaries of things. Um, that's what Aristotle like that said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no i th- I think it's I think it's true, and I don't I don't think that's that's changed. And again, here's another piece of folk wisdom. Well, now that information is you know widely available, information is cheap. It used to be that you had the Dewey Decimal System, and you had to actually hunt down facts, and you had to physically go to a library. Now, I'm not downplaying; those are actually important steps, and Yeah, I mean, you walk through those. You're doing some work to get to information. But the notion that because we have Wikipedia or we can search something on Google, that we no longer are, that that's led to a complete deadening of curiosity is false. I don't think that's true at all. Now, you could disagree with me and that's fine, but I submit to you that's false.
1: I think if, if I wanted to do serious, serious research for a day, it's still faster for me to drive to a library and use books than to click around on the internet. So focus is also something well, you have I think, to throw in here. And, and just to say that yep. um, you know, oftentimes, like I mess something up and it costs me and my dad will laugh and say, you know, you cut a board too short, you hit your thumb with a hammer, whatever. And my dad would always say, well, education always has been expensive, <laughs> um, you know? And, and so I yep. think yep. That, that's, there, there's a joke in that because I mean, the price of college tuition and all of that is phenomenal, but like start a business sure. that fails or, I mean, that's an expensive endeavor. I was talking to a friend about uh, running a donut shop and he's like, I did that for a couple years. He's like, that was the most fun I ever had losing $100,000. You know, education (laughs) is expensive. Um, And so, there's a sense in which the price of learning always requires something and in a lot of Mm -hmm. situations now, the only price you have to pay is a little bit of focus and attention to learn great things. And so, that's a marvel to be able to live at a time where we have I mean, I'm 37. I rode my bike to a public library to apply to go to college. I mean, you just think about the mm. the access to information that shifted in in the last 20 years of my life. We have a phenomenal amount to be thankful for there. So mm-hmm. do we need do we need a Malcolm? Well, I mean, maybe the Malcolm helps us remember the main point, serves as an illustration or an illusion that fixes it in our mind. But uh I'd say anybody who has made it to this point in this podcast doesn't need one. <laughs>
0: and just in case you missed it, the podcast you are listening to is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com that's t o l together.com and please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends it really does help